Well, may the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Our sermon text this evening will come from the book of 2 Samuel chapter 7 in the Old Testament. If you would like to look for it in your copy of the scriptures or it is also printed in your worship order. And we will focus on one part of that story where God makes a covenant with David to establish his throne forever through David and his descendants. As you know, for the last several weeks, we have been exploring the covenant story of God's work in the world, God's promises to redeem the world in Christ. And we've looked at a variety of stories from the Old Testament scriptures. And we have seen that the eternal covenant that God made with his people is a gracious oath sworn by God, secured by blood and sealed with token signs for the salvation of God's people in space time history. We started our series by looking at God's promise to Adam, the covenant he made with Adam to rescue the world in Christ. And then we move forward and saw God's promise to remake the world in Christ and the covenant he made with Noah. We also saw the, the covenant God made with Abraham and a promise to reward the whole world in Christ. And last week we saw God promise to reconcile the world in Christ through his, uh, through his promises made to Moses and Israel in the giving of the law. Well, today we move a little farther into the story, into God's covenant with David, where God promises to rule the world in Christ. And I hope you've seen that each week as God reminds us of his covenant and establishes his covenant again, that the covenant does not change. It doesn't, God doesn't do away with one covenant and then make a new one, but God renews covenant. And each time he does so, his promises get bigger and bigger. In other words, the covenants are expansive. They're expansive and they become more inclusive. And so as God moves from dealing with one couple, then he deals with another family, then he deals with a larger family, then a tribe and a nation of people, we see that God's covenant promises are expanding and increasing. And ultimately, all of these promises are pointing to the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Each week, as we make our way through the covenants, we see similar themes come up. We look at a story, and then that story points us to fix our eyes on the Savior. And in the context of the story pointing to the Savior, we see shadows that point us to the substance. And then there are signs and seals of the covenants that are presented to us. And today's story is no different. The story will begin with David, but then ultimately point to Jesus Christ. And there is a sign and a seal in this covenant that God makes, and it is the throne of God. David will not sit on his own personal throne, but he will sit as God's representative on the throne over his people. And when the true and better David, Jesus Christ, comes, he will sit on the throne of grace over all the nations of the world. But there are responsibilities and rights given to people in these covenants. And this one is no different. God mentions that when his descendants, when David's sons disobey God, they will be disciplined. But God will not break covenant on the basis of their disobedience. In fact, he will send someone to bear the punishment on their behalf. 
And so that's a long introduction to what we're going to see tonight. If you are willing and able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's holy word from 2 Samuel 7, verses 4 to 17. Hear the word of God. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built a house of cedar for me? Now, therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. And that is the word of the Lord. May God add his blessings to the reading, the preaching, and the hearing of his word. And all God's people said, You may be seated. If you're not careful in reading the story of the scriptures, you might imagine that this promise that God made to David just sort of dropped out of the sky, came from nowhere. You might even wonder why there is a monarchy in Israel. God had always promised to be king of his people, ruler over his people, shepherd and lord over his people. And yet somehow there is a monarchy in Israel. There are kings. Where did all of this come from? Well, the roots of the monarchy stretch all the way back to Adam, believe it or not. If you go all the way back to the story of Adam, you see that God created Adam. He created man, male and female in his image. He made them and he put Adam in the garden. And remember the commission he gave Adam that he should take dominion over the earth and he should rule over all of the creatures that are on the earth. Adam was crowned with glory and honor. He was made a little lower than the angels, but he was made above all of the creatures. And so Adam is placed in the garden as king over the world. And it is through his sin that he was deposed and fell from his throne. But God promised to restore 
the honor and the dignity of the crown back to man. You move the story a little farther and you see that the idea of the monarchy continues to grow. Jacob gave a blessing to his son Judah in Genesis 49 and said, Judah is a lion's cub from the prey. My son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness who dares rouse him. Then he says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of all the peoples. Again, at this point in the story of God's people, there was no king, but these prophets are looking forward to a time when God will raise up a king over his people. Even in the days of Moses, when God gave the law to the people, there was no king. And God gave a law to Moses. And in the law, God says in Deuteronomy 17, when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it, And then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your own brothers you shall set as king over you. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right or to the left so that he may continue long in his kingdom he and his children in Israel the law of Moses contemplated and anticipated the arrival of a king that God would choose but notice it was God responding to the desires of his people So the stipulations are when God chooses this king and sets a king over them, this king is to live by the law of God and the law shall be on his heart. He's to carry this law with him all the days of his life. You fast forward a little bit more in the story and you come to the book of Judges and you know the story of the book of Judges and there's utter chaos. Generation after generation of God's people are dealing with apostasy and Attacks by enemies and there's a sort of a downward spiral in the book of Judges as people do what seems right in their own eyes without regard for God's law and God's will. They do what's right in their own eyes and several times in the book of Judges we read that in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. A short time later in the time of the Judges a woman named Hannah has a child. By God's grace, she has a child and the child begins to grow up. But she wants to give thanks to God upon learning of this child coming to her. And part of her prayer and praise to God is the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. She offers this prayer in a time when Israel has no king and everyone is still doing what's right in their own eyes. The only king they have is the Lord. The people grow frustrated and they begin comparing themselves to the nations around them. And when Hannah's son, Samuel, rises up to become a prophet and judge over Israel, they go to Samuel and they say, give us a king. 
Give us a king who will rule over us like the kings of the nations, who will fight our wars for us and defend us against our enemies. He will go out before us and fight our battles. You see in their request that they want to be like the nations. They want to be like other people. This is a problem that God's people have always had as we compare ourselves to the nations of the world, to the peoples of the earth. We want to be like them when our desire should be to be like God. We were made in God's image and likeness. And yet you can see even in this story the resistance to being content with living in the image and likeness of God. And so the people want to be like the nations. God grants their request. Samuel is upset and he prays to God and cries out to God against his people. God says to him, it is not you they have rejected, but me. So give them the king they want. God appoints for them a king after their image and likeness, one that they desire. He stands head and shoulders above everyone else. He's a marvel to look at and everyone praises him. But he was not a man after God's own heart. The Apostle Paul on one occasion was invited to preach in a synagogue on one of his journeys. And he was asked to give a word of encouragement to the people in the synagogue. And in good Pauline fashion, he tells the whole story from the beginning to Christ. And part of what he says to the people in this sermon in Acts 13 is, The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, that is when God had removed him, he raised up David to be their king of whom God testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. And thus it was that David became king over the people of Israel. And during his reign, God was with him. And God granted him victories and gave him success. And God rallied the people around him. And eventually he was able to overcome his enemies and rise up to be the king of Israel and to sit on his throne in Jerusalem. And that's where we come eventually to 2 Samuel 7. David has been king for quite some time. He's becoming an older man. And he can see that his days are numbered and his life is sort of winding down. And he wants to do something for God. He's done much for the Lord in his life. But now he wants to leave something permanent behind, a kind of monument. He wants to build a house for God. So he makes this proposal. Initially, Nathan says to him, God is with you. Do what you want. And then God comes to Nathan and says, no, tell David not to build me a house. But tell David, I will build him a house. And thus we see again the gracious love of God, his steadfast faithfulness towards his people. David offers to do something for the Lord and the Lord comes back and says, no, I'm going to do something for you. I'm going to build your house. And he wasn't talking about building David a palace in which to live. He wasn't talking about a house of cedar and stone or gold. 
No, he was talking about building David a house of people. A dynasty. And he promises that he will always keep one of David's descendants on his throne. The Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And we know that as Solomon became king after David, Solomon did in fact build a house for God's name. He built a temple, but that wasn't even the house that God had in mind. It was part of the house God had in mind, but the house he had in mind was bigger and better than even that. Solomon wasn't even the true son that God had in mind when he said, I will establish his kingdom. That was Solomon was just part of the process. God has in mind a true and better David who will come much later. So king after king from the line of David had to wonder, am I the one that God will will bless and will he establish my reign? We also see in the line of David's sons that king after king, son after son, committed iniquity. And they found themselves rebelling against God at times and falling into sin and being disciplined by God. And God is still faithful to maintain his promise to David. His throne will be established. Someone in David's line will sit on God's throne. And so God goes to great pains to maintain the line of David that he has established. In the story we read in 2 Samuel, there's no mention of the word covenant. If you were listening carefully in our series on covenants, you probably noticed that the word covenant was not even mentioned. So why would we call this God's covenant with David and a promise to rule the world through Christ? Well, we say that because of things that the apostles and prophets said as they reflected back on this covenant. And I want to give you a poetic description of what's going on here. In Psalm 89, a man named Ethan, the Ezraite, tells the story of God's covenant with David. And he does so in this epic, poetic fashion. In this psalm when he says, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, the rock of my salvation, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest king of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep Keep for him forever and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of heaven. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my covenants, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquities with stripes. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness. I will not lie to David. 
His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon it shall be established forever. A faithful witness in the skies. When you have some time, go back and reflect on the beauty of of that psalm. Psalm 89. And you will see again and again how God established His covenant. Not on the basis of David's goodness. Not on the basis of David's faithfulness, not on the basis of David's righteousness. But God established his covenant with David on the basis of his own righteousness, faithfulness and steadfast love. So even when David and his line fall apart and fall into sin and transgress God's law and drift away from God's standards of righteousness, God swears by himself, by his holiness, that he will be faithful to his covenant. As we've said again and again, God is both covenant maker and covenant keeper. And this is seen clearly in the life of David. Now, if you read forward in the story of God's people in the Old Testament, and if you know much about the history of the kings, you can see that from the time of David and Solomon going forward, things really begin to fall apart. The kingdom appears to be unraveling. The kingdom divides into north and south. You have Samaria and you have Judah. They each establish their own centers of politics and religion. The kings do wickedly in the eyes of the Lord. God brings judgment on the nation again and again because of the wickedness of the kings. And in the midst of all of that chaos and turmoil, in the midst of all of that unraveling, it would be easy to think that perhaps God's promises to David had failed. It would be easy to read the the daily news or to see the reports coming out of Jerusalem and think the kings have abandoned God. God surely must abandon them. But it's in the midst of all of that that the prophets remind the people of God that God's promises have not failed and will not fail. And you know the passage from Isaiah 9 Usually at Christmas, we recite this in some form or fashion, but it's in the midst of all of this, watching one king after another fall and unravel and be judged by God. It's in the midst of all of that, that Isaiah the prophet says, to us, a son is born to us, a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called wonderful counselor. Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And still you have to wait a few hundred years before you see the fulfillment of this promise and the fulfillment of these prophecies made about the one who will sit on David's throne. And who is the one who will sit on David's throne? Well, if we could go back to the synagogue with the Apostle Paul and listen in on his sermon, we find out, as he says in Acts 13, of David's offspring... God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as He promised. 
And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us and their children by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Brothers and sisters, let it be known to you, therefore, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by everyone, by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So what has Paul done here? Paul has taken the story of God's promises, the story of God's promises to establish a king and a kingdom. And he's led, the, led us all the way to Jesus to say those promises made to David, the promises of David's throne being established, the promise of a king sitting on that throne, the promise of a kingdom extending around the world. Those promises are fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, it's easy for us to sit here this afternoon and hear this message. The only thing we have to fight against, perhaps, is a little drowsiness. But imagine Paul standing in the synagogue, preaching to people who were waiting for their Christ, waiting for the promises of David to be revealed. People who knew the Old Testament inside and out. And Paul is speaking to those people, and he had the audacity to stand in front of them and say, we can identify the one who fulfills the promises of God, and his name is Jesus, Joshua, Yeshua, Savior of the people. To a people who are expecting a king to come and establish a political reign and rule, or to a people who are expecting a king to come who is going to simply establish a sort of spiritualized, ghostly realm, what Paul says in conclusion of the matter must have been surprising to them. Because he doesn't take the story where you might expect it to go. The scepter will not depart from his feet. He will not leave the throne of his father. His kingdom will be established forever. What does all of that mean? What is the gospel, the good news that comes out of that story? The good news that comes out of that story is that what God promised to the fathers, he has fulfilled for his children by raising Jesus. And if he paused right there, they would think, yes, raised him up from the people, raised him up from among us. But Paul says, no, by raising Jesus from the dead. And he wisely cites the Psalms of David. He cites the Psalms of David. You are my son. Today I've begotten you. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. You will not let your holy one see corruption. David speaks as a prophet, not about himself, but about the coming of the Christ. And when the Christ comes, he will do more than 
reign politically over the nations. He will do more than reign spiritually over churches. What will he do? He will do the thing that the world has needed since the fall of the first king in the garden. He will undo the curse. Everything sad is about to become happy. Why? Because when this king comes, he will forgive sins. And by forgiving sins, by removing sins from us, by canceling the record of our debt against God, He is able to reestablish a relationship between God and man. He restores our fellowship with God. He reigns and rules over the hearts of men. The law that stood opposed to us, that said, you are guilty, you are guilty, you are guilty. The law that bound us and put us in shame. The law that was never intended to liberate us, but to show us how to walk before God and to do His will. The law that bound us as prisoners all of our life. The penalty and the guilt that comes with that will be removed in Christ and we will be liberated. We will be set free. Our sins will no longer bind us. And this is Paul's message of good news in the synagogue in Antioch, Pisidian Antioch. Now, if you're like me, you hear something like this and you think, man, it's possible that in your flesh, you might think that's kind of a letdown. You see, we're a people who are influenced by our culture and political leaders, and we crave power and glory as much as the next one. And what we expect Paul to say here is not what he says. We expect him to say something about the power and the glory and the majesty of Christ and how he's going to get even with his enemies. He's going to tear down strongholds. But what he says to us is true and better good news. And that is that when God fulfilled his promise to put someone on David's throne, he sent Jesus Christ. A king who has the right, the authority, the power, and the privilege to forgive our sins and remember them no more. So it's true what the Hebrew writer says that in times past, God spoke to his people in a variety of ways, in diverse ways. He spoke to his people through the law and by prophets, and he spoke to his people in the revelation of creation. But in these last days, God has done What he always promised he would do is he's spoken to us by his son. He has spoken to us by the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And that king and that Lord looks upon his people and graciously extends the forgiveness of sins to all who will turn from their sins and trust in him. To all who will bow the knee before him and declare Jesus is Lord. To all who will confess with their mouth. That Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead. For that is the good news. That this king was promised and has come. And like no other king, though he died, he lives. And no other king can claim that. Jesus has come and he's overcome more than just nations and enemies and political parties. Jesus has come and he has conquered the enemy Crush the head of the serpent. 
He's undone authorities and powers and rulers. And he claims victory over your life and over the world. And the gospel is that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And if you have not bowed your knee to him, if you have not yielded your heart to him, turn from your sins and put trust in him, we urge you with all your heart to do so now. For this glorious king sits enthroned on grace, ready and willing to forgive all who turn to him. Imagine all of your sins, all of the ones you can remember, all of the ones you feel, all of the ones that plague you now, all of those sins forgiven by Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And better yet, imagine all of the sins that you cannot remember, all of the sins you have forgotten and things that you didn't even know were sin. He promises to forgive. That's what it means for Jesus to be seated on David's throne. He's seated as the one who's ready to extend his scepter and receive you into his presence. And so turn your heart to him now. Draw near to him by faith and you will reap the benefits of his covenant grace towards you to forgive your sins and to remember them no more. Let us pray together. O God, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. He will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise Be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.